My name is Scott Challoner and this is the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. It is a crisp autumn morning here in the capital as you join us and I'm delighted to say that alongside me on the show is Chris Price, CEO at Christian charity Pecan, based in Peckham. Uh, Chris, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you. Really good to be on here. Likewise, Chris. So um, you've been uh, with Pekin now for um, 10 years, I think it's uh, correct in saying. Um, you're a Christian. It, it is. That's yeah. gone quickly. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I can imagine so. And um, you're a Christian charity, aren't you? So well, what is the sort of work that uh, you're involved with, just to sort of inform the listeners that have maybe not heard of yourself and your work? Yeah, certainly. So we're a, we're a charity that comes from a, um, a Christian background. We were set up just over 30 years ago by a group of churches that wanted to come together and look at what they can do um, as a community to really support people who are struggling in the community. And what they did from there is they developed um, some different training programs for people to really build confidence and to get into work. And we still provide those services. So we run a number of different employment programs um, based in Peckham, but covering the whole borough and some of our neighbouring boroughs as well. Really supporting people to, to get into work but building that through their confidence and building that through their strength, we really believe in a strength-based approach to changing people's lives there. That if people can believe in themselves and believe that they can add something, it builds their confidence and it makes them employable. We also mm-hmm. run a number of other services. We run the women's um, hub uh, for both Lewisham and, and for Southwark, and these are places for women um, come and in a women-only space and discuss issues. It could be around um, domestic abuse that, that's happening and we provide some mentoring for them. We also work with female um, offenders as well, women coming out of prison, and, and provide the same type of advocacy type of service for them so that they can really move forward positively in, in their lives. And we recognise that for women coming out of prison, we work with them as victims, as we recognise every single woman has been either a victim of abuse or a victim of crime, which has led them on at that road. And for a woman to go into prison, there are so many complexities behind that, that it's not always the right way of dealing with the issue. So we really try and look at the deeper issues and move women forward there. Mm. So We also yeah. run some food programmes yeah, mm. as well, which is Southwark Food Bank is uh, part of the Truffle Trust um, network of food banks that we run, and we run something called Peck and Pantry as well, which is a very different way of looking at food and security in the area. So it's an incredible and sort of wide-ranging mission that um, you're on there, obviously working on the ground very regularly with the uh, the disadvantaged. And I can imagine that over the last 18 months with the challenges that have come about due to the COVID-19 situation, you've probably seen some of those let's say, social inequality sort of laid bare ever more than ever before, I suppose. Um, how has it been for you sort of navigating the uh, the last few months when sort of we've seen the real harsh impact of poverty perhaps more than ever? We, we really have for this. And for our, for our women's service, it's meant really digging deep and supporting people with well-being, especially during the lockdown, which was really challenging for people. Um, yeah, and, and for for the women that we're working with, the challenge was dramatically harder because 
being in their own company for a lot of them, some of them in temporary accommodation, or most of them actually in temporary accommodation, made it really, really hard for them and their well-being. So we we were putting additional resources in um, and supporting people, ensuring everyone was getting well-being calls coming through. We produced um, a well-being pack that we sent out to them, and we had some amazing companies who were um, providing us with um, products, people like um, Tropic Skincare, who were brilliant with that, um, as well as you know a pack that really helped people to work through some different issues for them there. Um, yeah. With our food bank services, we really saw quite a change in there as well. We In 2019-20, we had our busiest year, and we fed just over 6,500 people. And then the pandemic hit, and our numbers went from 6,500 to virtually 20,000 that we fed during that time. And, and for us, that really changed the way that we worked. We had to move from a um, what we call a, a welcome centre approach, where people were able to come in and pick up food and get advice and support while, while they were there. Um, and because of the pandemic, we had to move to a delivery system. And what stunned me the most by it, not just the horrendous um, poverty that people were suddenly thrown into um, during that time, but the community approach and the number of people. We had over 400 people offering to volunteer with us. We had people out on bikes delivering food for us, people offering their cars, coming and driving vans for us, helping us to sort food. And the amount of food that the public donated meant we were able to feed everyone and actually feed them with more food than we normally would as well. It's incredibly interesting, isn't it, how in a year, well, a couple of years where we've been perhaps more apart than ever before, we've also sort of been closer than ever before, given how everybody has sort of gone above and beyond during this time within communities, within various sectors as well, just to make sure that people are fed, there's vital services that can continue to run. Um, do you think that's probably one of the sort of few silver linings to maybe come out of what has been a very difficult and very tragic couple of years? I, I think so. I think it really shows that, you know, our, our society has community at the heart and so many people were willing to get involved and do things. Either, you know, if they physically could, that, that was great. If they're able to, you know, donate food or donate money, then so many people got involved. We were you know, really, you know, emotionally overwhelmed by the amount of response. And it really does give hope back to the communities that people people don't want to see other people suffering in their community. And we really got that feel from it. Yes, yeah, certainly. And obviously when you're um, working so, so hard in your organisation to obviously be on the ground and make sure that obviously the community is being served the way that it should be. Um, how is it that you sort of maintain morale amongst sort of your own staff members? Because I can imagine that obviously with the immediate and present danger of the virus, there were probably sort of one or two sort of anxieties in there that you might have had to deal with. There were, you know, and, and different people um, worked their way through it through it differently. Some were more um, challenged by the situation. Some people became ill during the time as well. What we did as an organisation, we moved one of our, our staff um, into a, a wellbeing coordinator role. And that for us was so important that they were looking after everyone else. Um, and Alex, who does that, that role, has a really good phrase uh, that you can't pour from an empty cup. 
And so really her role was to keep ensuring that people's well-being was up and that she was the one filling their cup so that they could then support other people. It's fantastic, isn't it? And making your people feel good, I suppose, is one of the 10 core principles of uh, the Happy Manifesto, which is uh, one of those leadership books that you're particularly fond of um, as well, Chris. Um, is that one of those um, sort of pieces of literature you'd say that's really proven an inspiration for you over the years? Oh, it, it has. I've been, you know, sitting in and out of it the last 15 years or so. I just find it a really refreshing way of working. And just ensuring that, you know, we're, we're as open as we can be. Um, you know, and, and with the Happy Manifesto, playing to strengths is such a, an important part that we all have different skills, different abilities. But when you come together, you create a team. And when you work from those strengths, actually your weaknesses become less of a barrier to it as well. Absolutely. And um, it's a fantastic book for the regular listeners that may not be familiar with the Happy Manifesto written by Henry Stewart. It's been out for a few years now. Um, you can download it um, online as well if you can't get hold of it um, in the paperback or hardback version. So certainly worth um, a read and some fantastic tips for obviously creating a happy, productive workplace, but also building a fantastic team around you. Um, and I suppose as well that when it comes to sort of being in a leadership role such as um, yourself, uh, Chris, um, you obviously feel the pressure to inspire inspire those around you and kind of lead by example and a key part of that as well is taking the time out um, for sort of self-care as a leader Um, and I say this because mental health is something that perhaps has come under the limelight more so than ever before over the last two years with the effects of COVID and obviously when we've been in crisis mode we've seen people in leadership roles going out and chasing after everybody else making sure that their well-being is right but obviously you've got to take that time out to make sure that you're sustaining yourself and not burning yourself out. So as leaders, I think it is incredibly important to remember that, you know, when you need to take a step back, you obviously have to take the opportunity to do that. It, it is vitally important. I think we have to model good behaviour. Um, and, and sometimes that can be hard because as, as a leader, you have a lot on and you're there to really support other people to fill in the gaps at times, you know, when, when people are struggling. But making sure you have that break between work and um, home, it, for me, is just really vital. I'm one of the people, because of the services that we run, I'm predominantly based in the office, so I get that beautiful break in between the two that I can leave the office. And by the time I get home, um, you know, life is very different there and I can leave mm. it behind. And whether it's the male psyche um, in me there that just is able to compartmentalise everything, um, it's just so important that I can concentrate on stuff at home and the voluntary work that I do from home as well and, and leave work behind. So when I come back to it the next day, I'm fresh into it rather than just exhausted with it. Mm. And as I've touched on before as well, um, our role as leaders is to be beacons of inspiration to those around us. But when you're sort of in a leadership role like yourself, um, who is it that you look to sort of for inspiration uh, yourself? Um, I can imagine, of course, your faith plays a large part in that. But is there anybody that you've maybe worked with or maybe sort of encountered in the media that's perhaps sort of inspired you over the years? I, I think for me, it's people who keep an eye on the vision. You know, that there's a lot of work going on and we can be lost in our day-to-day and in our operations and where we've seen our op- 
you know, the amount of operations really quite explodes for us. You know, we over this period of time, we, we've grown as an organization quite dramatically. But we have to make sure that we keep our, our eye on our, our vision. And someone we work alongside a lot is Emma Reedy from the um, Trussell Trust. And she has really kept the vision on what is it we're trying to do. And that whole focus on ending the need for food banks has been really, really key, that we're not looking to grow as a, in a business model because the more people we are feeding, the more people we're identifying as being in poverty. We need to work against having poverty as part of our society. And, and she has constantly kept that focus. And that, to me, is really inspiring in the way that we want to work. So for our whole team, and especially our um, food services team within the, the food bank and the food pantry, their whole aim is to look at, well, how can we end the need for this? What do we need to do to stop people needing this service? And, and so that's what we do is make sure that we're constantly thinking like that and looking for people who are looking at what's the bigger picture of what we're doing rather than just our day-to-day and operational work. So I can imagine that when we're thinking about the uh, the future and the next sort of 12 months, especially in this, what's hopefully now the post-COVID world, one of your major priorities is going to be that campaign to end the need for food banks, but also to kind of change the way that we speak about poverty. I mean, it seems to be one of those accepted norms in society at the moment that some people just are going to slip below the poverty line when it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And, and it doesn't. You know, we are one of the richest countries in the world. We do mm. not have people in poverty. And what I, you know, I joined the voluntary sector about 25 years ago. Um, and we were there sitting on the poverty line, working with people there and helping to raise them up. I feel what's happening at the moment is that this poverty safety net that's supposed to be there, we're sitting underneath it and helping to push people up to it. And, and we need to change that type of. Um, feeling on there that people can slip below a safety net. We should have a net that no one falls below. But what the charities can do is sit there and actually help build people up so that they're not just looking at their survival mode, but they're looking at how they can start to thrive. And all we're doing is really helping people to survive at the moment. And and it's that language that we need to change. So that's mm. why we talk about um, ending the need for food banks. And we stopped using the phrase food poverty because what the pandemic really showed us is there is no poverty of food in the UK. There is plenty of food. There is more food than people can think of what to do with. Mm. What there is is people without enough money to afford the food that's there. And that's the issue that we have to tackle is about income poverty, not poverty of food. Exactly right. And we are in the midst of what has been described by many politicians as a cost of living crisis at the moment with the prices of goods and services climbing high as well as the prices of energy as well. Uh, We're seeing various shortages in various supply chains. So that's, of course, having a real impact on that. And as we sort of get to grips with that particular challenge in this next year, Chris, by, say, this time in 2022, what are you hoping to have established at Pekin and what do do you really want to have achieved by then? We want to have developed more conversations on the language of poverty, ensuring that more people who are trapped in a cycle of poverty are able to express how that is for them and to work with 
decision makers, within the council, within government, within businesses, to say what these effects are and what it does to them, and look at how we can start the whole process of co-commissioning of services, and not us being part of the commissioning, but actually the people that we are supporting, and really bring their voices forward. That's what I'd love to see happening, is that more of that happening, and people really see taking um, the ability to have a, a role in making decisions that affect their lives. It's a fantastic mission that the Pekin Charity is on, Chris, and I certainly wish you all the best of luck over the year, the next 12 months and beyond. And if you are somebody tuning into this podcast today and you feel that you could be supportive of that mission, um, you can find out more at uh, pekin.org.uk, I believe your website is, isn't it, Chris? That's it, yes. Absolutely fantastic. So do uh, visit the uh, the website if you do feel you're in a position to uh, to assist with that. Um, Chris, we're just about out of time on the show today, unfortunately, but it's been incredible having you with us and sort of casting a glance over what's been going on in your sort of area of uh, the charitable sector. And I think as we start to sort of get to grips with the challenges of the next year as well and understand just kind of what trajectory we're going on as a country, I'd even love the opportunity to welcome you back onto this programme in future just to see how things are coming along in house and hopefully we'll be talking about some positive changes to that conversation about food poverty as we've talked about today it'd be an absolute pleasure and thank you so much for this opportunity to you know open the window on the world that we we see here it's it's been a real honor it's been fantastic to have you with us as well, Chris. And um, please do take care and stay safe moving forward with all still going on as well. And to everybody tuning in, um, if you feel that you have your own story to share with us here at the Leaders' Council, then by all means, you can also apply to be on the show via leaderscouncil.co.uk. Um, I hope you've all enjoyed listening to my interview with Chris Price from the Pekin Charity today. And until next time, take care and goodbye.